listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm Sterling Chapman, and I'm joined here today by my partner, Andrew Bruff. So today we have a guest that I'm excited to have on the show. He reached out, and he has a tremendous amount of underwriting expertise. So I told Andrew to make sure to show up today so that they could geek out on the numbers together. His name is John Stober, and he is an underwriter at Kronos Investment Partners. He also is the author of a book that just came out called How to Analyze Big Apartments and Make Them Feel Small. So John, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Yeah, Sterling, Andrew, thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. So, John, tell us your story. How did you get to where you are? How did you get into real estate? Where did you start and what are you doing now? So, I've been in the real estate game. I guess it's been almost four years now. And it started when I graduated from college. That whole last semester of college, I was just looking for a job the entire time. And literally like days before I graduated, I finally got my first job offer and I was super excited until I looked at the compensation package that they were giving me. So I looked at how much they're paying me and how much vacation I was going to be given for the year. And I was just like, well, shoot, I'm not making enough money to like go on vacation. I don't have enough vacation <laughs> to actually go traveling. Yeah. What was the job? So I mean, I still work there. Actually, I'm a financial analyst at a government contractor. Okay. So crunching numbers and spreadsheets. I got but, you. Yeah. And I just studied abroad in college the semester before I graduated and me and my friends always went on these big ski trips over winter breaks. I was like, I don't make enough money and I don't have enough vacation to go do any of that anymore. So I need to start making some passive income so I can actually afford to do this. Skiing is expensive. Where do you live? Well, I live in Maryland, so I have to fly out to like Colorado or Montana or like these Western states. So yeah, it gets real expensive really quickly. Come out to Utah. I love Utah too. Yeah. Going back there, the, this winter actually to go skiing with a friend. Nice. But, you know, so I'm just looking at the compensation package and like, of course that leads me to Google and I'm like, how do I make passive income? You know, literally search (laughs) that. And it comes up with like, you know, you can invest in like CDs, bonds, dividend stocks and real estate. I'm like, well, I'm going to need like a million bucks to make any sort of passive income. If I'm investing in stocks, bonds or CDs, but I was always interested in real estate I just, I'm incredibly unhandy, like shouldn't even be allowed to hold a hammer. And so that had turned me off from real estate, but Googling it made me realize I'm like, there's really not a whole lot of other options out there for passive income. That led me to Brandon Turner's book, the book on managing rental properties. I read that in like a day and I was like, you know, I'm going to be a real estate investor. Like I decided right there, I was like, I'm going to be a real estate investor and I'm going to retire by the time I'm 30. Fast forward nine months, you know, I'm working at my job and I bought this little two unit house hack up in Baltimore city. You know, I grew up outside of Washington, DC and bought it on FHA financing, got in for like five grand, was living for free, dealt with a few headaches here and there in the front end, but got that thing performing really well. And it was like an ideal house hack situation from a spreadsheet point of view. So after I get that thing stabilized, you know, I'm thinking, all right, I need to like accumulate some capital, do some bird deals to have some passive income coming in and then recycle the equity. And I was like, I need to learn how to rehab, which is like, you know, I'm not allowed to swing a hammer, remember. So learning how to rehab properties for me, that was like really, that was really daunting. But I was like, 
you know what, let's just do it. And of course, I found like an absolute shell of a home up in Baltimore City, like 120 years old, had to completely gut the place. And that was like a really painful learning experience for me. <laughs> Honestly, gotten way over my head on that rehab with my limited experience. I did that with a couple partners. And while we're me and one of the other partners, you know, we're struggling along with this rehab. I have this two unit. He has this four unit. And it was like every time we made mistakes with our multi-units, you know, our tenants essentially paid for all of our mistakes. Like he dealt with a really long eviction and his tenants paid for his attorney costs. Whereas when we had to put a new roof on the property, because we didn't know we had to do that when we initially walked it, we're like, well, that's coming out of our pockets and we're not getting paid till the end. So that ended up leading us into multifamily, which is ultimately where we wanted to go anyways. We just thought that we, we would have to wait a much longer time to get there. And so about two years ago, we were like, yep, yeah, we're going to skip all the single family stuff, wholesaling, flipping, the whole shebang, and we're just going to go invest in apartments. And that started that entire journey. Awesome. Awesome. I uh, did not even know that real estate investing was a thing until I was 30. So um, <laughs> congratulations <laughs> on getting the head start there. And I certainly didn't skip Better late all, than never. I did not skip all of the headaches of the single family houses either. I still have I'm some. I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. Awesome. So tell us about how your large multifamily investing career is going these days. Well, so... I guess I'll pick up where I left off. I was two years ago when I decided to start. I was like, I'm going to be a multifamily investor. And I closed on my first deal back at the end of June. So it was almost two years, like between a year and a half and two years. That's how long it took me to find a deal and just learning, educating myself, analyzing deals, like honing that craft. I mean, you got to look at like, I probably looked at over a hundred deals. Andrew and I are very familiar with the struggle. It's like really, really hard to find deals. And with houses, you can find like tens of thousands of houses in any given market. So you can kind of stay in your backyard unless you're in like the San Francisco Bay area. But with multi-units, there's a lot less inventory of them. So you got to, often you have to venture outside of your backyard. And that's what we did for this JV deal. And I guess where I like honed my superpower was like, I was like, I have this finance and accounting background. I work in finance for my W-2 job. I'm going to like learn how to analyze the deals and run like the finances of this project. And that's how I'm going to add value. And so when this 34 unit complex came up, I had a, a friend who's now a partner, you know, she had it locked up under contract and, you know, I had a good amount of trust and respect for her. One of my partners at Kronos jumped in on that deal too. So I was just like, you know, this is probably the best opportunity I've seen in two years since I've been looking for deals. And while it doesn't fit my ideal criteria, I don't want to wait another two years to find a deal. So I kind of just took a leap of faith and went in there. Yeah. Now we're repositioning that down in Little Rock, Arkansas. Awesome. Uh, Little Rock's a good market. Were you initially targeting Little Rock or or is it it was it just the the personal connection that got you there? It was just the personal connection. Little Rock wasn't really on my radar at all. <laughs> I hear you. So, kind of give us the numbers. You mentioned it's a JV, so it wasn't a syndication. So, how <laughs> how did you get financing for it? What did the number I mean, can you share all that with us? Yep, absolutely. So, it was 34 units 
We actually got this through a wholesaler. So with the assignment fee, it was about $800,000 for the purchase price. And this was your typical like mom and pop landlord who had completely mismanaged the place. He put anyone in the property who had a pulse, no sort of tenant screening. So there weren't any financials to go show a lender to get financing for this. And the collections were really low because back in June, you know, we're still in the middle of COVID and he's put these really bad tenants in the property. So initially we're like, you know, we had talked with some lenders and we're like, you know, we're going to go get this recourse loan with a construction loan and we're just going to like ramp through our rehab. But the seller was kind of like eager to sell it quickly and we didn't have time to go get the recourse loan. Otherwise we were going to lose the deal. So one of my partners, her name is Emma, she negotiated a master lease option with the seller where we were essentially going to make a wrap mortgage payment on the seller's payments. We have our own amortization schedule with the seller and that's how we're secured financing. We closed on the deal and of course like the lender comes back and was like, while we were under contract, they're like, oh yeah, you can get like 80% loan to cost on the project. And then as soon as we close, they're like, yeah, we can only do 70 right now. <laughs> we're just like, are you kidding me? Like for yeah. two months, you've been telling us we can get 80% LTC. Now you're telling us we got to come to the table with like $100,000. So we looked at some other options for like hard money. It was just too expensive. But like the terms she negotiated on this master lease option were so good. I mean, she got us a 3% interest rate on this loan with the seller like we're paying down more principal than we are interest so we're like it makes more sense honestly to just go raise the money to fund the renovations ourselves and then once we've stabilized it enough we can either go refinance it into a construction loan or we're just going to sell it outright but so it's probably like eight hundred thousand over 34 units that's like 23k a door something like that and we're budgeting around eight to 10 K a unit in rehab. And then when we sell it, if we were to do the whole thing, it should be worth between like 1.3 and 1.5 million. Okay, cool. How is that going? How is the rehab and the, the repositioning going? How are they getting those testy tenants out? Well, the eviction moratorium hasn't made it easy. It's hard to get them out and the courts are all backed up, but overall it's going really well we're getting much higher rental premiums than we originally thought. And we're putting section eight in the units wherever we can just to get guaranteed income. So, I mean, it's like, I view it as like, we're like a volatile stock, you know, like we have days where it's like, (laughs) Hey, we just got a bunch of new tenants and like they're paying 700 bucks a month in rent. We're like, wow, we thought we were going to get 625. So that's amazing. But then we also like, you know, one day we had like this gas leak at one of our properties and I was like, yeah, it's going to be an $8,000 bill to the plumber. (laughs) It's just like, oh my God, like, where are we going to get this money? And we went out and like we had, and we had to put like some personal funds into to get that deal. But overall, I think it's going really well. And when we look at like what we bought it, what we're going to be into it for. (laughs) It's an emotional roller coaster, isn't it? Oh yeah. You go, you go from being like, I'm a rich genius to I'm going broke. I'm going to go bankrupt. I'm, I can't believe I did this. I'm so stupid to like, I'm going to be a billionaire to like, I'm going to fail miserably like eight times a day. Dude, oh, <laughs> like, I can't even just like say it better because I've had those days where I'm just like, we're going to kill it. Like I'm going to triple or quadruple my money in a year. And then I've had days where I'm just like, how I'm going to go bankrupt. <laughs> like how am I going to get out of this deal? 
<laughs> yeah, so it's totally like that. At least it's 34 units, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you still have tenants in there. Yeah, and we do. And our, our break-even occupancy is like 50% too. And wow. we're about to do like a wave of evictions once the first comes around. So Assuming that you can do them on the first. Right. Well, so we've act, we've already filed a bunch of evictions, actually, and most of them have gone through. We had like two tenants who put their CDC paperwork in, and now they're filing for unemployment. But I think we've filed over 10 evictions on this 34 unit, and like only two people have put their CDC paperwork in, and we just kicked someone out. Well, didn't kick them out, but like the judge ruled in our favor a couple of days ago on one. So like we're still doing it. And I think like when the first comes around, we're about to just roll through all like five more and we'll rehab those units and then once they're leased up it's going to be like an extra i think like four thousand dollars a month in our pocket going straight to the bottom line it's been an unusual time with the eviction moratorium we had a tenant the other day that was a couple months behind and we couldn't kick him out for that but when my property manager went over there got into an argument with them and they pulled a gun on the property manager we were able to get them evicted for that so <laughs> That, that, you're like going like yeah like we got him evicted and it's like oh crap like my, my, hopefully the my, property manager doesn't quit my property manager is going to listen to this and call me cussing me out he's like you were cheering when I got a gun pulled off <laughs> yeah you might have to give him like a Christmas bonus or something right <laughs> so what's next what's your game plan now are you still pursuing I'm assuming that that's the most recent property y'all have acquired yeah, and that, that was, you know, that was my first acquisition. So my main focus is getting that thing turned around. Just given the size of it, our closest partners, and they go to the property like every week or every other week. They live in Dallas, so it's like a four-hour drive away from them. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's a weird management size because we don't have full-time staff. So once we get the thing stabilized, we may just sell that, capture the equity, and then it's on our track record. And I really want to go look for some some bigger deals that can support a full-time staff on them to potentially mm-hmm. syndicate. But I also have a partner who just went full-time and he lives in Jacksonville, Florida. So he, I mean, Florida is obviously a great market. So I'd love to get something down there and we could potentially get like a 20 unit. And because he's local, he can be very hands-on with that. But ideally, getting in some of these more like stable markets in better neighborhoods, more stable neighborhoods where you're not going to have to deal with tenants who are in like the service industry and they're losing their jobs. That's what I'm, I'm aiming for next. Yeah, I've had several conversations with Andrew over the last year about those $600 a month tenant base. Mm-hmm. He, he's like, man, these numbers work great. I'm like, yeah, but that's not that's not like real numbers. You operate under a different, a whole different set of assumptions in those neighborhoods. Yeah, there's so much more property damage. There's so much more turnover. It's not the same as evaluating, you know, nine hundred dollar a month properties. Right, and that's like exactly the type of like area I'm trying to get into is like that 900 to like $1,200 a month rent. And that's the stuff Grant Cardone, like he used yeah, to talk uh, about all the time. He's like, you want to be in like these B neighborhoods in the nine to $1,200 range because that B stuff, that's where people actually flock to like during a recession. And during good times, you still have good stable tenants in there who are paying the rent. 
Yeah, I've always loved those numbers, and I do remember Grant ranting on about them. Grant's one of those people that she, it's like a guilty pleasure. Like, I like to listen to him for motivation, but I don't like to admit in public that I listen to Grant Cardone. <laughs> I was talking with my buddy about him, him yesterday, though. Like, sometimes he sounds so dumb. Yeah. But if you actually listen to what he says, though, you're like, there's like some really good nuggets in here if you're just like willing to get past his delivery. So, I, I mean, I admire the guy for what he's done. Sure, sure. I actually recommended to my sales team today that they go out and get 10x. <laughs> it's a good book. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump into the numbers a little bit. What are some of your best practices? Well, I really like to get familiar with a market and understand like what the operating expenses are going to be. I, I Usually when I get to the point where I've analyzed about five deals in a market, I can start to pick up some trends, especially if it's the same vintage. So if it's like an older building built in like, I guess like pre 1980s, you know, I'll start to see like, all right, the average water sewer bill is like 800 bucks a year unit. So if I start to look at a deal that's like the same property class and I'm seeing it's at a thousand, you know, I start to think, all right, is there a potential to implement like a water conservation program here? And even if it's 800 bucks of rent, you know, there's still probably potential to implement a water conservation program. Getting really familiar with the rents what units will rent for, what amenities they have. That is what I think is like the most crucial aspect of underwriting. And it's what takes the longest too, if you're not super familiar with the market, because you're just scouring the internet, you're talking to property managers, trying to talk with investors. If you're in like that $800 a rent range, a month rent range, you know, if you get your rents off by like 30 bucks a month, it's going to have really big implications on your deal getting that rent is like absolutely paramount talking with property managers and investors on what your operating expenses are going to be. And of course, just like not being too aggressive on your exit cap rate when you go to refinance and when you go to sell. What do you do with your exit cap rate? You like 1% above or you know, a 10th per year. What do you do? I try to pull sales comps and see what things in the market are trading at. And then I usually pick an exit cap rate where my comp lines up with the similar properties. If my property is like completely renovated and stabilized, my exit cap rate is probably actually going to be higher than if I renovated half of my units and I left a whole bunch of meat on the bone for someone else. But also, if I've only renovated half the units, it's like I'll have a lower cap rate, but my, when like my exit price per door, you know, it might be, if it's fully renovated, I might sell it at a six cap at 80K a door. If I've renovated half the units, I might sell it at a five cap, but it's only going to be 65K a door because my NOI is lower. So that's like a really tough thing if you're not super familiar with the market is it's like you know, when you're flipping houses, you have to compare apples to apples. Are you looking at a house where it's got like granite countertops, stainless steel appliances and a new roof? Or are you looking at a house that, you know, it also needs some updates and some TLC too. But if it's like completely stabilized, I'm going to try to find a completely stabilized property and see what it has traded at and like try to find the average cap rate for that. And then, yeah, if I'm going to hold it for five years, I'll probably do something like add 0.1% each year to my reversion cap just to account for the fact that the building's aging 
and you want to make sure you know you're not getting Market all of your gives. returns mm-hmm. like you got to have the cash flow too so right. i really like what you say about being familiar with the same market and, and it's 100 percent on track with what we do you know we pick a few select markets and get to know them over and over again one thing i don't like to do is rely on other people when you you analyze so many deals yourself you personally become familiar with it because i always feel like everybody's lying to me because everybody is trying to sell me something right mm-hmm. like you ask the property manager oh yeah i can get you that rent bump oh yeah well they're trying to sell you their services of course they're going to be overly optimistic mm-hmm. when you ask an insurance broker for prices they're trying to get a commission off of the premium so of course they're going to give you the highest quote when you ask a broker that that's trying to sell a building you know what I'm saying? They're trying to sell you the building. They, they want to make the sale. So really, in my mind, like nobody's interest is really directly aligned with yours. So right. the more you know yourself or have someone on your team that knows the numbers, who's got aligned interest, the better off you are. Because if you rely on all these third parties, like they're all looking to sell you something and it's, it's going to skew their judgment. I mean, whether they're intentionally doing it or not, they've all got an agenda and it's typically different than yours. Yeah, it's not their money in the line. So what markets are you going to be focusing on after you, you get through this property? You mentioned Jacksonville. We love Jacksonville. We've looked at tons of deals in Jacksonville. It's a highly competitive market. How do you choose a market? We're definitely going to be focused on Florida, like Jacksonville, Tallahassee, Daytona Beach, just because we have boots on the ground. But it's nothing special. It's probably what everyone's heard when they're choosing a market, looking for like job growth, population growth, income growth. I tend to like markets that are a little more right-leaning because they tend to be more landlord-friendly. That was a huge reason why I jumped in on the Little Rock deal because I was like, it was in the middle of uh, the CARES Act, but I'm like, you know, we're in Arkansas. They don't even know what tenant rights are there. So that makes me feel a little better. Like if we have to potentially do this wave of evictions, which we did, and my hunch was right. But yeah, job growth, population growth, if I can find an area, I want the median income to ideally be at least $35,000 because if I'm looking for that like eight to $900 rent, you know, $35,000 a year can support that. And then it's even better if there's just more jobs coming into the area. But I'll caveat that with saying, you know, I think with COVID and remote work, we're about to see like in the next 10 years, our economy is going to change so much. And I'm just, I'm still like trying to figure out how is remote work going to impact the migration trends? Because now like is job growth really that important? Because you can go work from anywhere, especially if you're marketing more to like B plus A minus tenants, you know, those are white collar employees. If they're working at some accounting firm, like they can live wherever they want. So maybe smaller tertiary markets are going to benefit from that. And like, I bet the super expensive primary markets are going to suffer, but how about primary markets like, you know, I guess like Jacksonville, Orlando, where they're growing really fast right now, but they're not super like expensive and unaffordable. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. We like to go 40,000 or more median household income. Mm-hmm. Home price is also important too, because you want to make sure that you're not competing with a mortgage payment is not going to be the same amount as rent. Sure. Otherwise, why not just go buy a home? Absolutely. I see that all the time in your area. I interviewed somebody earlier this week from Baltimore and he was telling me, y'all have some crazy 
rent prices and home prices for that matter in the, in the area. When he was telling me about people getting, you know, paying five grand a month for rent, I'm like, I don't understand how somebody who can afford five grand a month for rent is not buying a house. Like it just doesn't. It doesn't. Man, you can buy a house in Baltimore for five grand in some neighborhoods. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so tell us about the book. What inspired the book? What's the book about? And how did that whole process go for you? Well, so like, you know how I said I have that finance and accounting background? Yep. So that's why I was, I naturally gravitated toward learning how to underwrite deals because I thought it would honestly come naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And then as I started like analyzing deals, I started doing what everyone does, like pulling them off LoopNet and Crexy and trying to figure out how to underwrite them. And I was like, I have no idea how a building operates. Like, I don't know what financing terms are going to be like for these multi-units. So I had no idea what I was doing. And there's so many assumptions when you're underwriting a deal. It was like, each time I would get a little further, I had to figure out a new assumption. Like, what's my lender going to give me as far as like debt quotes? How much should I assume for rental rate increases? And it took me forever to put the pieces of that puzzle together. It was probably like a year. And it's because I was just asking Facebook groups, asking people here and there. There wasn't really like one source I could go to that said, you know, this is how you figure out like how much your repairs maintenance is going to be. This is how you figure out what your rents are going to be. So I was like, if I'm having this much trouble and I'm good with spreadsheets and numbers, I feel like a lot of other people just, they don't get as far as I did and they quit. So I was like, if there's not a ton of education out there on this subject, you know, maybe I'll just write a book and I can fill that void and, you know, add value to the marketplace. Awesome. 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 So what would you have done differently if you say, if you had to start all over again, like you're that old or that far in the journey, you're kind of like right in the, the thick of it. But like, if you could go back to where you first discovered real estate and decided you wanted to be an investor, and do something different, what would it be? So I definitely would have done the house hack, but if I could have done anything differently, I probably would have just gone straight into multifamily after that and I would have paid a coach to do it. Yeah, It took me a lot longer because I kind of figured out everything on my own, but I definitely I was thinking would. that when you were telling me all the questions you had, and I'm like, man, there's like 8 million people on Facebook trying to sell courses that could teach you how to do that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've never, I've never paid for one, but like, you know, there's, there's no shortage of people out there touting that they got the answers to all those questions. Yeah. Well, and so like back then too, even when I first got into multifamily, like I wouldn't have known which coach I would have gone with right. I mean because there's a lot of people out there coaching who I don't well either they shouldn't be coaching or like they just don't resonate with me but now there's like two or three of them where I was like you know I think I have similar values to you I think these people are totally legit so yeah I would have just paid them for coaching and I probably would have gotten in like much earlier it wouldn't have taken nearly as long to get a deal yeah absolutely so Real quick, I want to hop over to our radio round, help our listeners just get to know you a little bit better. First question is, what's your favorite book? And, and you can't say your own. My favorite book or like the most influential book? I mean, you can tell me both if you got, there's, there's no like hard structure around this. I'm all into like those fantasy fiction books with like warlocks and magic. So I love, I'm a veto the warlock <laughs> and magic books. Let's get back to reality. 
Okay. <laughs> no, the most like influential book on me is is Brandon and Heather Turner's book, the book on managing rental properties. Because if it weren't for that book, I probably never would have gotten into real estate investing. It was the book on managing rental properties, or it was the book on investing in rental? The blue book or the yellow book? I think it was the blue book, the step by step manual where it's like this is how you be right. a landlord. Yeah. So, well. I mean, they're both pretty step-by-step. I read both of them multiple times. I think you're talking about the blue one was like the the book on investing in rental properties. And then the yellow one was the book on managing rental properties. And the book on managing rental properties, I followed step-by-step and like I created my filing system after them. I created like, I downloaded the leases from them, the like eviction notices from, I mean like, I modeled my whole managing business program after that book. And I did it like that for about a year and a half before I, I handed the reins of that, that management over. They're both great books. I did the same thing on my two unit. I had like a little filing system and all yeah. of that. But I just remember there's like one part in the book where they're like, you don't have to know how to do your own repairs. And to me, I was just like, oh, sweet. Like that was like my biggest limiting belief for this is why I can't invest in real estate. And they're like, no, you don't have to swing a hammer. I was just like, I can do this. Yeah. And that's what like, ultimately I'm, led me down the road. I am right there with you. I'm the absolute worst. My wife doesn't even like me to fix things around the house. She's like, why don't you call uh, one of your guys that works on the, the... I'm like, I could do this. And, you know, two days later, and I'm like, got paint in my hair and like a nail <laughs> through my arm. And I'm like, all right, all right, I'll call. <laughs> Take a quick trip to the emergency room, too. <laughs> so what is your favorite quote? So there's a quote called, or that says like, you may encounter many defeats, but never be defeated. You know, any entrepreneur, they're going to have setbacks and they're going to get knocked off the horse. But the only time you really lose is if you quit. That's right. That's good stuff. That sounds very, very stoic-y. Mm-hmm. Everybody seems to be in the, the, the stoics now. My, my dad's all into the, he sends me stoic quotes every other day. And I've seen quite a few entrepreneurs on Facebook doing the same thing. Yeah, with like the big banners and the pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? Oh, it's definitely snowboarding. Nice. I am terrible at snowboarding. So I've tried a handful of times, and I think that's the most I've ever injured myself was attempting to snowboard. Because like with skis, when you like fall down, they like break off and you just like fall over. But with snowboarding, you're – the snowboard like helicopters down the mountain and your body stays attached to it and just twists mm-hmm. up like a pretzel and you like pull and twist things that you didn't even know you had. So I've tried a couple of occasions. I'm like you, if, if I had to do it over again, I would have hired a coach cause I just tried to figure it out on my own and I was unsuccessful, but I'm a really good skier and I really enjoy it. So I, uh, I'm scared too. It's snowboarding. I broke my leg. <laughs> really? <laughs> When it first came out in the 80s, said, no, I won't ever do it again. <laughs> well, did, you, did you run into a tree? No, it, the boards are so heavy and they didn't let you snowboard on the uh, the groomed trails. So I was very new at it in a, a place I shouldn't be snowboarding. John, <laughs> this, was back, this was back before we were born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you guys ski? Yeah, I ski, uh, well, there's some, some great resorts here in Utah. There's Snow Basin, Alta, Snowbird. Yeah. I've been I, to park in canyons. I love it. It was great. I went, where, where was it that I went earlier this year? Where was the best ever conference? 
Keystone. That was really fun. I think that was the first time I'd skied in Colorado. I used to live in North Idaho. So we went a few times in, in Washington and around there. And I used to live in Massachusetts. So we went in like the Vermont area. And one yeah. time in high school, we took a family vacation to Switzerland, to Zermont. That was like super legit skiing in like Zermont, Switzerland, or like by the, the Matterhorn and then like Slovenia, Italy. So one day I'd like to uh, have enough real estate to be able to go do that again. Yeah, that's like my dream. That and like New Zealand needs some more cash flow. Yeah, yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what it's all about. So um, how can our listeners find you, network with you, get in touch with you, find your book, tell us how to, how to get connected? Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to share that. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'm pretty active. So my name is just John Stober. And same thing on Instagram, John underscore Stober. The book, you can get it for free at bit.ly forward slash underwriting ebook. I always have to remember the URL for that. And then we have our own podcast called The Millennials and Multifamily too. And so you can catch us there. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, joining the show. Thanks for reaching out. It was uh, great to have you. And we'll definitely look forward to keeping up with your journey. Thanks, Thanks you guys. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>